I cannot tell you how excited I am for today's conversation. Kevin Bame is a giant in our industry, and he really brings uh, tons of transparency to this conversation, uh, talking about uh, how he got started, how he's grown, how he thinks about culture and leadership and vision and profitability and, and so much more. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast dedicated entirely to the hospitality industry. We cover marketing, operations, and just about everything in between. Each week, I leverage my 20-plus years in the industry to help you build a more sustainable and a more profitable business. I also work directly with operators all over the world through my group coaching programs to help you address and overcome the specific challenges we face in our industry. Curious to learn more? Set up a free 30-minute strategy session at restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. Let me show you how simple it can be to run a profitable restaurant. Again, restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. As always, you will find that link in the show notes. Now, we all know managing costs is one of the most important parts of running a profitable restaurant, especially now. But between fluctuating vendor prices, waste, labor, and the never-ending list of tasks that demand your attention on a daily basis, it can be challenging for even the most experienced of us to manage costs well. That's where Margin Edge comes in. Margin Edge is a complete restaurant management software that automatically uses data from your POS and invoices to show you your food and labor costs in real time. Don't wait until it's too late. Margin Edge gives you tools to make decisions in the moment, like a daily P&L or price alerts on key ingredients and real-time plate costs, all without ever having to touch a spreadsheet. Take control of your costs, work more efficiently, and be more profitable. Learn more at marginedge.com chip. That link is also in the show notes. Now, my guest on today's show is Kevin Bame. He is the co-founder and co-CEO of Boca Restaurant Group based out in Chicago. Together with his partner, Rob Katz, he was the finalist for the James Beard Award for Outstanding Restaurant Tour in 2015, 16, and 17. Uh, and then they finally broke through and won the damn award in 2018. Some of his restaurants include Boca Restaurant, The Girl and the Goat, Swift and Sons, and nearly two dozen others. There's a ton that we're going to get to, but let me start by saying, Kevin, welcome to the show. And let me start by saying thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. I always know a podcast is going to be good when they get my last. You know, name I think it's the least. I think it's the least uh, an interviewer can do is just do a little bit of homework to understand who they're talking to. Uh, I got to say, especially somebody as accomplished as you, I'm, I'm grateful to have you uh, carving out the time, especially as you're in the midst of uh, another restaurant opening, uh, which we can start with now or we can get to later. But I, I know how um, crazy restaurant openings are, and the fact that you've carved out an hour of your life to give to me I appreciate no I'm, I'm happy to be here and and honestly you know we open tomorrow we have 400 on the books tomorrow <laughs> and I needed an hour today that where I wasn't thinking yeah. about that I'm a believer in in balance 
Um, and so I've had no balance the last week. So this is a pleasant distraction. So I want to go way back to the beginning, but I want to f- I want to follow that line of thinking. So balance. Um, it's not a word you hear a lot in our industry, certainly. Um, talk to me more about that. You run uh, an empire with a ton of restaurants all spread out, you know, not just in your not just in your town anymore. How do you balance all of the requirements of you? And then how do you find balance between personal, professional and, and all of that? If you break down the word restaurant, it literally comes from restoration, restoring other people. Um, and when I was young, you know, I was kind of Superman. I could like get up on three hours sleep, run six miles to the restaurant, work till midnight, have drinks till two in the morning, do again the next day and actually be in an incredible <laughs> mood and, and want to do it all over again. And as you know, now in my fifties, it doesn't quite work that way. And so if I want to be at my best, you, you have to conserve a lot of that energy. And so for me, finding time to either hit a yoga mat or just some time alone and thought, I have an office by myself that I can grab a little solitude that allows me to then be inside of a restaurant or meeting with my teams and be my optimal self. So you're talking about boundaries. Are those, I mean, I imagine, like you said, it was different in your 20s and your 30s and 40s, and it's sort of, I imagine, an evolution. Talk to me about how um, how you set those boundaries for yourself. If you you know, find a meditation practice or a yoga practice or just working out or whatever, do you, do you specifically look at your calendar and just carve out time every week for that? You have to be intentional about boundaries. This, with the amount of restaurants I have, the amount of emails and texts alone that I get every single day, if I wanted to, I could just live in that space all the time. I could just live on my DMs right now that are all asking for different times of <laughs> reservations for Lay Select right now. Um, but, uh, you know, I have rules for myself. And some of those rules are I'm going to return emails in the morning when I have my green tea and once in the afternoon and before I go to bed. Now, within that, I'll flip through my messages, make sure that nothing is a 911. But otherwise, those are my times to sit down and do those things. There are so many things within the restaurant business that require you to be analog, that require you to speak to people, to talk to people, to see how people are feeling. And to me, that supersedes um, all the electronic stuff that bogs us down all the time. So if I do everything my phone tells me to do, which is kind of what my <laughs> calendar is, I tell it for me to go and find a yoga mat or to take a half hour or to eat lunch here. Um, And I'll be honest with you, I've broken some of those rules this last week. Um, Last night, I just realized at the end of the day that I had forgotten to eat. (laughs) My last meal yesterday was a Portillo's cheeseburger. It was the only thing I ate all day at 1130 at night. And I just was kind of laughing at myself. I'm like, well... Yeah. You've been here before. This is not. This is the wrong way to do it. You're doing it wrong. So I still do it wrong sometimes, but for the most part, I stick to that schedule of if I'm going to do everything my phone tells me to do, I'm going to make it tell me to do good things just for yeah. myself. Sometimes. Yeah, I think it's something uh, very easy to overlook. So it sounds to me a little bit, and I've thought a lot about this over this last year. It was sort of a sort of a theme of 2022. I worked with a bunch of my clients on on sort of the similar thing. Again, how do we balance? There, there's this uh, famous old pamphlet uh, that was written, I don't know, 100 years ago, uh, about the tyranny of the urgent, right? That so often the tyranny of the urgent crowds out the important. And 
how do you weigh that? Because in the restaurants, everything is urgent, right? There's somebody complaining now. There's a table that has to get reset now. There's food that has to get to the table now or it's going to be cold. And it and it spills over outside of service, um, partially because I think we let it, partially because I, I don't know. How do you think about that, the balancing urgent versus important? Yeah, you know, you know, I used to say that I was very concerned in creating my own current in life when I started. That's why I wanted to go into business for myself. I wanted to push mm-hmm. this current. And what I realized quite a few years ago that the current was actually dragging me at a certain point. So that urgency inside the restaurants became a microcosm for life. That you would you would come into the restaurants and yes, somebody needs something right now and you gotta get this for them right now. And the inertia of that will carry on to everything you do if you yep. let it. So mind, body, soul, those things can't be less any less important than your business. And I've seen this happen to a million people where their entire life is that business. And then when that falls apart, your whole life falls right. apart. So if you think of the, your relationships in buckets, if you think of your relationship, there's a relationship with yourself, there's a relationship with your family, there's the relationship with your work life, there's the relationship with all of those things outside of work, the things that you do that make you happy. If all four of those are in chaos, there's no way you're going to yep. be happy. Yep. So prioritizing importance um, for me, and every recipe for every single person mm-hmm. is different. Solitude, the exact opposite of urgency, is really important to me for me to be able to do all the other things well. And that's be a good father. Um, that's be a good family member. That's to be a good leader at work. And for me to show up when I need to inside my restaurants and be a, be a warm, energetic host. Those things only happen where I can, when I need that sense of urgency, I can do it if on the other side I've supported yeah. myself. Yeah. I want to go back, and like I said, I, I want to start at the beginning, and, and I, I feel like that is a theme that I'd like to sort of touch upon as we go through. Um, the beginning, com- like my birth in the hospital in Flint, Michigan? Or? No, I want to talk about <laughs> how you got started in the industry, because yeah. like you said, uh, the way you conducted yourself, uh, the way your life was constructed in your 20s is different now uh, sure. that you're in your 50s. I think it's true for, for, I would hope it's true for a lot of people that they have the luxury of bringing some intentionality to how they conduct themselves. That's not often the case. And something you just brought up there um, uh, is something I see a lot from a lot of independent operators. So I've worked in big groups. I've worked in uh, in small independents. And one of the things that I see that a lot of independents struggle with is that you start a business so the business can support you in your life. I mean, literally, I'm going to create a business that can pay for things so I can put a roof over my family's head, food on the table, all of that. And very soon, to your own point, um, pretty soon, if you're not careful, um, it ends up the other way around. You've created a business that, that you just always have to attend to, and it sort of defeats the main purpose of why you did it to begin with. It sounds like you were uh, very focused on making sure that didn't happen, but that's now me talking to you where you're at in your career. So let's go back to the beginning. Yeah, that's, to- 50, that's 52-year-old me, 21 yeah. years, completely different. So then talk to me. So. 
tell me about how you first got started in, in the industry. When did you say, hey, uh, this is cool, or I could do this, or I don't hate this, or I love this, I want to I want to do this for the rest of my days? Well, there's the kind of childish dream part to the story, which is like 10 years old telling my mom that I wanted to open up my own restaurant. But I only really thought about it when I was in when I was in college. Uh, two of my housemates were people who became like legends. You know, one was Mike Hopkins, who became he's the last American astronaut in space. He was the commander of the SpaceX mission, but he had a, he had a mission about ten years before that. And one of the other ones was Dave Eggers, who was a finalist for the Pulitzer and has you know written all kinds of amazing books like The Circle and Hologram for the King. And, and Dave was actually pressuring me one time and just being like, "You don't want to be a lawyer. You have no interest in being a lawyer." And I go, "Yeah, I, I don't." And he goes, "Well, what do you really want to do?" And I go. Well, it's kind of cheesy. I mean, I want to I want to open up my own restaurant. I mean, this is like 1989. It wasn't very cool to be in the restaurant business yeah. in 1989. And he goes, "Well, well, why wouldn't you do that?" And I go, "Well, I don't. A, I don't know anybody in it. B, I don't really know what it is. And C, I don't have any money to open up one anyway. I, I grew up with no money." You know, how am I going to make that happen? It's super unrealistic. And Dave goes, well, Kevin, you know, Mike there thinks he's going to be an astronaut. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that seems pretty, there's only been 450 of them. I think if you really want to do that, you could probably navigate it. And that's probably the first time my brain thought about, okay, well, maybe, maybe I could make that happen. And, And so that next semester, I just said, I'm, I'm going to drop out of college and I'm going to go work at what I thought was a legit restaurant, try it on for size. And, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So I was like, I can always come back to college, whatever. Let's go try this out. And it took me about, after writing a fake resume and getting a job at this restaurant, uh, three weeks in, I was like, this is it. Yeah. I can, I can do this. Um, and I just, I loved it. I loved the excitement of it. I loved the energy of it. Um, serving felt like my own business that I was controlling my own economics every single night at each table. Sure. Um, uh, there was, you could gamify it. Like if I gave somebody really good service, the next time they came in and they asked for me, I won. Um, and so I loved all that stuff about it. And, and I developed a plan very simple plan, but looking back on it, it's, it, it wasn't a dumb plan. It was, if I can live off everything I make off of this job, couldn't I get a second job in the afternoon and save everything I make off that job? And eventually I'll have enough money to open up a restaurant. And that's basically what happened. You know, two years at that restaurant, just two years later with no experience, and, and, and a bit of a moron still, myself and my girlfriend at the time opened up a six-table restaurant 30 years ago called Lazy Days Cafe. And that building today is still a restaurant. It's, it's for the people who know Rosemary Beach and Seaside and Alice Beach and the Panhandle of Florida and Seaside, Florida. I w- it's now called George's. I opened a, a six-table restaurant. So two years to save up the money to open it on your own, no other help, no other investors, nothing. You no other investors, but you have to understand it was the most modest restaurant in the history of restaurants. It's It was stuck together with bubble gum and scotch tape. Okay. And how long, uh, so then tell me about that. How long did you did you run that restaurant for? So, you know, first of all, opening night, 
I reached out to put a piece of bread in the oven and the bottom of the oven had kind of shifted, the pile of light had gone out and the oven blew up in my face and caught my hair on fire. So two hours <laughs> two hours into being a restaurateur, I was being whisked away to the hospital in an ambulance and it just scabbed my whole face. Uh. So it didn't start out well. Um, but we had we were there for two years and somebody bought the property, we had an option on it, and we negotiated a buyout. And I took that money and I opened up a wine bar, sushi bar, rock and roll bar, um, just down the street. And that was even more fun. And I loved that. And then a couple of guys from New Orleans came in one day and wanted and loved my bar and wanted to buy it. And I sold it to them. So in the beginning, I was like flipping houses. Yeah. I was. It, <laughs> what I loved about that was that like every dime I made, I would put into the restaurants. I wanted them to look better. Like I lived horribly, actually embarrassingly. Like my, I had a house that I didn't have a bed in and I slept on a couch and I drove the world's worst cars that were constantly breaking down because I didn't care about anything but putting any money I made into the restaurants to make them look better. That was my house. The other place was someplace I slept at four hours a night. So obviously you're on one place, runs for a couple of years. It, it's profitable, I, I got to imagine. Ish. Okay. What do you mean by ish? I just mean that that first restaurant. If I wasn't making tips, because we were waiting on every table, cooking all the, you know, my my girlfriend was the chef, you know, I helped prep and did garmoger, you know, and then you know I would wait on every table and do dishes, and then we would pool our tips, and then we paid each other like a thousand dollars a month. That's what we made. Okay. And it was enough to survive. And so, and and the restaurant, other than that, kind of broke even. Okay. And then, and then we got bought out, so we did make a little bit of money. Second restaurant made a little bit of money, better in tips. Um, we paid ourselves once again like a thousand dollars a month. My, me and my partner Jeff at the time. And so, at that point, I was making money by accident. I was not. I was. I didn't know the formulas of what restaurants uh, should be, what the benchmark numbers are, until I bought a book around that time of that second restaurant that was called Restaurants That Work. Okay. And it was it's still around. You can find it. It was case studies of restaurants and what their food cost was, beverage cost was, what their rent should be. And when I saw that, I was like, I thought I discovered oil. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I like, Oh my God. Yeah. Now I can punch my numbers in and see what I'm doing. Is what I'm doing making sense? And some of it wasn't. I wasn't marking things up enough. You know, maybe I didn't sign the world's greatest lease. Yep. Um, my labor cost was low, but my cost of goods sold was super high. <laughs> and I was like, oh, all right. I kind of get this. And so when I opened up restaurant number three, then I was doing it scientifically. So then talk to me about that because I want to spend, I want to live in that. And I'm so glad you brought that up because it's one of the big questions I have. I have very specific views about profitability, about our industry, about sort of where we've been, where we are, where I think we're going or should be going. Um, yeah. I don't want to, I, I don't want to exert them onto the conversation, but we'll certainly get into that. But I want to know how you think about it. So you struck gold. I think of like uh, back to the future too, right? When uh, yep. when he's got you know the almanac of all the uh, 
of all the World Series, all the games, everybody who's won, and yes. he goes into the past and he bets on everything. Like for me, that's what that seems like. It's like I found the book that has the test. all the answers I, to the test. I just discovered the answers to the test and. And I, I was not going to share them with anybody else. So <laughs> I love it. And it's a published book that anybody can get. Correct. So, <laughs> I'm okay. not telling anybody about this book. I, so when you said you approach your third restaurant scientifically, explain what you mean by that. So then I've got this formula and I'm like, okay, 30% cost of goods sold, 30% labor equals 60% and 60% is prime. So I got to hit that magical 60% prime. Got yep. that. And then occupancy needs to be somewhere around back then. You got to remember, this is this is 25 years ago. It's going to hurt, but go ahead. <laughs> it, it's all going to hurt. was like 4%. Yeah, right. And, and then everything else, which they did not have a name for, but we internally at Boca call it silo, which stands for supplies, insurance, lease equipment, and other. Great. That was about 16 and that, if you killed it, could leave 20% profit. And there were people back then making 20% profit on restaurants. And I was like, great. Okay, <laughs> let's do that. That makes sense to me. And so now I had a goal every single month. And I could change things by just a little bit. And I was just like, okay, price or cost dictates fairness. And so when I would construct a dish together and I was like, okay, we're going to do seared tuna with a mandarin soy ponzu and a ginger cabbage stir fry. And that dish cost me eight bucks. Well, let's extrapolate it. What's 30%. And then I got really smart and I was like, oh, there's a margin of error here. I have waste every single day. I got people not following the recipe. So Let's add a couple points in there and let's make it 28%. That's right. And so uh, by, the time I, by the time I got to the end, this is 1997, 98, 99 in Springfield, Illinois. That restaurant's still open, by the way. I don't own it anymore, but it is still in Springfield, Illinois. It's about to be their 25th anniversary. Love it. And I'm going for it. Um, I started to figure it out and I was like, okay, this model works. Now, where we sit today is completely different. Yeah. We run about 38 to 40% labor cost in most of our restaurants. There are some restaurants that still run a traditional model because of the check average. So a steakhouse restaurant runs a little bit like the old days, which is it is a higher food cost, but it is a lower labor cost. Um, you know, S S uh, Swift gets to prime in that old traditional model mm -hmm. of basically 30% food cost um, and labor is about 30%. But most of our restaurants fall in this 38% labor, 22% blended cost of goods sold still gets us to 60. But occupancy is between six and eight. It's and amazing. you can keep it below eight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've been in New York city, city for too long. <laughs> there you go. Depending on the city. And if you go to New York, maybe it's 10. Yeah. And then silo is more like 20 instead of 16. Yep. So 20 plus 6 plus 60 leaves you 14% profit. And that's about where we try to fall is this 12 to 14% profit. 
I love it. I love that you just walked us through all that. I spend a lot of time thinking about this. Uh, I work with clients all over the country, and it's funny. Uh, I bring to them uh, in my program that I, when I work with people, uh, I talk about what I call the 30-30-20 rule, which is basically 30 cogs, 30 labor, 20 I call it everything else, the, the kitchen sink. I love your, uh, your word of occupancy silo. and Take silo. It. You can use it. <laughs> but it's funny because I say, hey, listen, this is how restaurants were built. This is how they were built when they, when they worked, 30, 30, 20. Now, I'd rather try for 20% profitability, fall short, land at 15 or 14, and uh, rather than try for 10, right? 10 is the promised land for most, uh, for most restaurants. And I just want, it's funny that you bring this up. I want people thinking bigger than that because, and we'll talk about this, because I, as I think about the past, present, and future of the industry, I don't think there's, I don't think it's going to be a lot of people who want to get into it for 4% profit, uh, n- nor should they, or 5% profit, 5% profit that also requires them to be there 60, 70, 80 hours a week. Um, no. I think there's a different way, but I love that you're thinking about, you, you reverse engineer it, right? What's the rent, right? What's the, what's the dollar amount per square footage? You multiply that out. If that's what I'm paying in rent, then what's 6% of that? What's 8%? That is 8% of what number? Um, that's how you arrive at your revenue. Can I drive that kind of revenue? How many butts do I got to get in here every single day in order to do that? It's just, I've been saying this a lot in this last year. Um, I just uh, I went to business school uh, and uh, got my MBA in food marketing. Um, and I was there with a lot of restaurant people, but more people who came from the retail side. Uh, manufacturing side. So people from Campbell's and Tasty Cake and, you know, and uh, Frito-Lay, PepsiCo, and they just think differently about all this stuff. And they really come at it. um, They're really savage about this. And it was something I learned from them is that the restaurants are really closer to uh, a factory than we like to believe. Yeah, it's sexy what we do. Yeah, we take care of people. But at the end of the day, we still have to build numbers that make sense. Otherwise, there's no reason to be in business. No one aspired, right? You aspired to open a restaurant because it was fun. It was sexy. You loved it. All of that. Nobody aspires to open a factory. The only reason somebody opens a factory is if they see a business opportunity. They know they can make a widget for $1, sell it for $5. Great. Let's open the factory, right? Uh, and I think it's got to be that. I think we have to apply some of that same thinking, Um to the restaurants, because it is. We bring in raw materials, we do something, and then we sell a, a finished product. It, it's, you the can same, be an artist. it's the same thing. You can be an artist and a businessman. They're not mutually exclusive. I, I, we try to find that perfect intersection where the two of those meet, where there's not too much of either of them. Because we've seen this with a million chefs where they're like, I don't care if I make money or not. You're not going to change my art. And a lot of times that person has a business-minded partner and those relationships, just like most rock and roll bands, don't last very long. Um, Partnerships are really, really hard. Fortunately for me, uh, you know, my my main business partner, which is Rob Katz, and I agree 97% of the time. And then I have seven chef partners and we have an understanding of what we're both trying to do. But... You know, I think it works for us because, you know, Rob and I both appreciate the artistry and the way I started Lazy Days Cafe. I was 100% artist and 0% businessman who was hoping there was money left at the end of the month. Now, today's episode of Restaurant Strategy is also brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. 
Great restaurants are built by great teams, and Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, to hit labor targets, to keep your entire team connected. With drag-and-drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, tip management, and more, it makes restaurant work a whole lot easier. From back of house, front of house, managers, franchise owners, and larger corporate teams, Seven Shifts has benefits at every single level. Plus, it integrates with the other systems your restaurant already uses, like POS and payroll. Turn your team into your competitive advantage. Restaurant Strategy Podcast listeners get three months absolutely free. Get started at sevenshifts.com slash restaurant strategy. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash restaurant strategy. And again, you'll get three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using seven shifts today. That link is also in the show notes. Which is how so many operators run which is how many uh, independent op- uh, owners do that right they do what they they think they should be doing at the end they're i'm just waiting to see from my bookkeeper to see if i made money and, and what i learned when i was coming up in the industry like i started with they're that? pulling it down it's like a slot machine they're pulling it down like please say please That's say it. I'm but you know? so my first i'll say two management jobs that's how the place ran, and I didn't realize that that didn't make sense. It wasn't until my third place when uh, you know I worked with a guy who then became uh, a mentor of mine, one of my best friends in the world. We went and opened five restaurants together, um, and he said, "I know by the twentieth if I may, if we made money or not. If if we're on target, are we on track to hit our revenue targets? And each week, have we uh, where have we come in on labor and cogs?" He's like, "I know exactly where we are. I know to tell Beverage to hold their order. No, no, no. Let's push it to next month. I know to tell the kitchen to go to go lean on the order for this week. I, I know what to do. I know, I know where we're going to wind up exactly." And I was yeah, like, there's "Whoa, there's too many surprises. You're doing it wrong." That's right. That uh, that's right. And I just think so. Again, when we talk about the past, present, and future of the industry, I think that's where we have to go because I think it's just too tiring and too exhausting. And as food prices go up and la- uh, labor keeps going up and rent continues to go up, uh, that's not going to stop. I just think it get, we get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed unless we can be intentional about how we do it. Uh, I just think there's no. There, it's just not. It's just more fun when you're making money. It's more fun when you can manage proactively uh, and actually look at things on the twentieth and say, oh. We're off track. Great. Now, what are we going to do? Let's pull the fire. Let's pull the fire alarm, fire drill. Everybody's got to do this and that. What What does everybody need to do in order to get us back on track? Um, I love it when a model works. You know, we <laughs> last the last restaurant we opened before Lay Select was Alavita. Um, uh, no, Laser Wolf's last one. Alavita was before that. Alavita is just one of those models. That we knew month one it was going to work. It all just worked. We had great rent structure. The food cost was good. It didn't take a tremendous amount of labor to put it out, and it was busy all the time. And you, every once in a while, you get one of those, and you're just like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just works without having to do anything. So that sort of leads into um, my next question here. So I want to talk about – because now – so you open the places in Florida. You open the place up in Illinois. You're getting closer to Chicago. Talk to me, obviously, you talked about your partner. Talk to me about that partnership. Talk to me about, I'm really curious, on the 3% of the things that that you typically don't agree on, because I think that's probably interesting. That's worth talking about. Yeah. And all of that, I want to talk about how you assess business opportunities, how you approach a new concept, how you approach a new opening with this sort of scientific methodology and this mixture of art and craft. Walk me through all of that. You start wherever you want to start. Sure. 
<clears throat> well, you know, after Illinois, I went and opened up a restaurant in Nashville, and I got I got shit kicked. I opened up something that was too big, um, and I had my feathers a little too high in the air because I'd gone and opened up three restaurants in succession when I knew nothing and did really well. So I'm like, now I'm going to go and just like really kill it, and I'm going to open up this giant restaurant. And there's so many reasons that didn't work. Um, but coming out of it, when I got to Chicago, I was like, you know what? I probably need somebody to be a true business partner to me. Um, and, you know, somebody who operates a little bit different than I do, where we fill in each other's holes and we can bounce stuff off of. Not somebody who's, you know, constantly agreeing with the other one. Yeah, that's a great idea, man. You know, and so Rob and I were introduced by a mutual friend. We had a cup of coffee. We were supposed to sit for 15 minutes. We sat for four hours and we said, let's open up one restaurant. What's the worst that could happen? And that was Boca. And Boca <laughs> was a pretty broad sketch. We're like, Lincoln Park doesn't have a lot of like destination dining. It's right across from Steppenwolf. You could get a good theater turn. Let's open up a contemporary American restaurant. Um, put 450 grand in it and see what happens. It was designed, ironically, by the same guy who designed Danny Meyer's first restaurant, designed Union Square Cafe, and we went to work. And I think the most important thing of that restaurant in the early days was that Rob and I found our footing. I would come in and I would turn the lights up and I would turn the music down. He would come in and turn the music up and the lights down. <laughs> and, and we, uh, and we, it took us a while to figure out and. But what we became was the alchemy of both of us. You know, he had been a little more on the nightclub side before that. I had been on the restaurant side. And our DNA became these restaurants that had, were serious restaurants with serious chefs, but had a real energy to them. Um, and so as we were figuring each other out, we were kind of building the architecture of what our restaurant group was going to be on the back of cocktail napkins at the end of the night. And that architecture ended up being, hey, Let's not build it around one chef. Let's build it around multiple chefs. And then we can do all kinds of restaurants. Um, so, you know, Boca opened in 03. And then here, and then we made a couple mistakes. We opened Boca in 03, Landmark in 05, and Perennial in 08. Three restaurants that were about two blocks from each other and were all American restaurants. Landmark was a little clubbier. Um, Boca was a little more serious. Uh, Perennial, you know, had the Green City Market right across the street from it. But it didn't matter. We were cannibalizing ourselves. Hmm. And the next restaurant is what started to define really who we were. We partnered with Stephanie Izard and we built Girl on the Goat. That was our fourth restaurant. Our fifth restaurant was GT Fish. And after that, we had defined concepts in everything. And then we looked at it and we were like, wait a second. Landmark should not be Landmark anymore. Landmark became Belena. We did a serious Italian restaurant with... Chris Pandel. We put Paul Verant, who is one of Food & Wine's best new chefs at Perennial, and it became Perennial Verant, and it became a farm-to-table restaurant. And then we figured out who we were. We are like, every time we build something, it needs to have a signature look, a signature culinary voice, and a narrative and a story that it's, that it's its own. And so we sort of got it. We, we figured out who we wanted to be, 
And we went into each restaurant knowing what the identity of that restaurant should be, which I think is one of the most important things you have to do when opening up a restaurant, is stick to who you are. Don't let those first couple of weeks where you're shaking out who your clientele is going to be, don't let them push you into anything. You know, I love when that. we opened Taro, the idea was we're going to do the entire fish program direct from Skiji Market to 100% Japanese fish program. And we're not going to be doing dragon rolls. We're, you know, our nigiri is just going to get a quick brush on it. Um, and, you know, people came in and they wanted a lot more aioli on their, on their sushi. <laughs> but those were groups of people that were not looking for our restaurant. Okay, so then talk to me about because I want to stop you here because now you're starting to get into marketing. This is sort of where I live yes. and what I love to talk about. Yeah. So you talk about identity. You talk about yeah. perspective and point of view, and I think that's yeah. all great. But there's another part of this conversation that I'm sure you didn't uh, – I'm sure factored into what you did, and I want you to talk a little bit about that. So you yeah. said, oh, people wanted this. We were serving that. But you knew yes. that there was an audience for that. You, there was an audience for yeah. what you were doing. Talk to me about how you assess that. You, you look at the market and you say, hey, there are going to be a lot of people who want this kind of thing. We're not giving this kind of thing. The kind of people we want are over there, and we're going to do that for them. Talk to me about how you assess your market and how do you determine what a town, a neighborhood, a block needs so that you can very confidently bring that point of view to the table. Well, first of all, it's a, it's a guessing game, and there's no idea how to how to completely blueprint it. But we've had pretty good instincts as far as that's concerned. And Japanese restaurants did very very well in Chicago, um, and you know the few big box ones were pretty clubby. And we were like, let's do something that maybe the design's a little more serious. And we engaged with Abrico. And that was the first time we did a project with them. And we said, you know what? Let's do an izakaya downstairs and create something that's maybe a little bit of a younger demographic and create a second door that goes down there. But let's do a serious fish program. And then do a Japanese seasonal kitchen that is really taking some chances. And let's see if it connects. We think it'll connect. We loved it. It was my favorite kind of food. It was Rob's favorite kind of food. We did the tasting and we said, the food's delicious. The menu is going to probably read a little bit confusing. And for some, it might read a little bit heady. But you know what? We're going to stick to it. So a couple things we stuck to. We stuck to the food program we were going to do. And that izakaya, which took a little while to find an audience because it was buried downstairs, it stayed open till the wee hours every single night. Yeah. We're like, we're going to get there. And the first thing that really happened and buoyed us was the Chicago Tribune did the 50 best restaurants in Chicago. The very first list Phil Vitell did, the Chicago Dining Food Critic at the time. And the number one restaurant in Chicago he listed was Alinea, and that was not a surprise. But number two was Momotaro. Mm. And then soon after that, we got Esquire's Best New Restaurants. And we really started to find a crowd, and that's a crowd that's now gone for eight years. But it was there was a stick-to-your-guns moment where we were looking at the people that were coming in, and it might have been a, you know, 12 girls coming in on a girls' night out that we might not have been the exact place for that group. And we still tried to make them as happy as possible, but we found an entirely different crowd for that restaurant 
And I'm so glad we stuck to our guns. So is this one of your superpowers? <laughs> if, there, there's, if there's something that you're innately good at, I mean, you talk a lot about instinct there, and you said uh, your own taste and all that. And sh- surely taste comes in, you know, any great artist, for example, is sort of sort of rides their taste for a while until their sort of craft can catch up or their artistry can catch up to what they they want to do. Um, you're talking about one restaurant, you've opened two dozen, and you've gotten it right more than you've gotten it wrong. So how do you get it right as often as you do? And, and talk to me about how that decision might have happened for, for other restaurants. We're really good at whiteboarding. Our superpower is whiteboarding. And a lot of times what we do, let's say we're opening up a steakhouse. One side of the board says, what are the core competencies that you have to have to be a steakhouse? Well, obviously you have to have steak. Do you have to have a Caesar salad? Do you have to have shrimp cocktail? I don't know the answers to these questions. Let's let's get a group of us together, which is usually myself, Rob, and the chef, and maybe it's our chief development officer, or maybe it's our COO who's been with us a long time. And then the right side of the board is like, how are we going to bend it? And so with Swift and Sons specifically, we said, what if we had a concierge in the restaurant who is only doing stuff for the guests who are in the space? So when somebody said, hey, is there a good jazz club we could get into tonight? Not only do we have a printed copy of that in an envelope, but we're also going to call that jazz club and see if we can get a table for them. If somebody at the table has chapped lips and we notice it, we hear somebody say it, we run somebody to Walgreens and we get them some bliss stacks. I mean, so that was one thing. We're like, okay, yeah, let's do that. Two, we're like, what can we do with carts? And we're like, let's build a chocolate trolley. Let's do something. The room kind of looks like 1920s, maybe the dining room that would have been on the Titanic. It looks like a big ship. Let's do these beautiful carts that we roll through. Let's do a cocktail cart that we press ice and make these beautiful ice balls for people's drinks on a cart throughout the dining room. Let's do a chocolate trolley. And let's do a beef Wellington cart that comes out and we cut it table side. And then we're like, what if we had a magician in the restaurant and the magician was on the menu and it said 20 minute magic show, 60 bucks. And you could order that. And so now we're looking at the board and we're like, okay, now we got enough weird stuff to be something. We're not just a steakhouse. We're our steakhouse. And that's how that opened up, that restaurant opened. And so now we do that with everything. You know, Lay Select opens tomorrow. And part of the DNA of this restaurant is we're doing hors d'oeuvre service. And hors d'oeuvre service is you say you want it at the beginning of the meal. Everybody at the table has to participate. A card is going to come up and you might get duck riettes and eggs with caviar and French baguette with 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 french butter um and so six things get dropped on your table immediately um and so that was one of those things in that same conversation what are the core competencies of a french brasserie and what is our brasserie yeah i love that and so i i think that's one of our superpowers is that we make things that look different that taste different and feel different but they don't look like anything else we ever did. They're not facsimiles. Yep. Uh, you might be able to f- 
feel of Boca Restaurant because our hospitality is warm in a certain way, but they don't look the same. Yep. I'm okay with people not knowing that that restaurant is ours. Yep. They walk in just like, I'm at Stephanie Izard's Girl and the Goat, or I'm at Daniel Rose's Lay Select, or I'm at Lee Wolin's Boca. Great. Wonderful. We've done our job. Yep. Yep. You know, what I love most about uh, the example you just gave is that you've systematized that, which, you know, we started off this conversation talking about balance and um, that's balance. That's a balanced whiteboard. Talk about setting boundaries. Talk about, I spend a lot of time thinking uh, and talking about differentiation is that we don't need just another anything. We don't need, certainly Chicago doesn't need another steakhouse. So you answered the question, hey, uh, if we're going to say we think uh, Chicago needs another steakhouse, why? why? And, and really, that's what comes down to. That's what marketing is all about, right? How do we persuade someone to do this instead of that, ours instead of theirs? And we have to give them answers to that. And if you don't supply that, they'll make decisions on, on far feebler um, uh, pieces of information like convenience or price uh, or familiarity. I spend a lot of time thinking about that and talking about that. So I, I love that. I love that system. I love the whiteboard uh, it does sound like a superpower because you've, you're thinking intentionally about that. But we have conversations outside of that that sometimes have nothing to do with the restaurant we're about to open. But it might just be like, why does Olive Garden do so well? You know, what is it about that? What are the smart things that they've done? And you can't say they're not smart. Agreed. When you're here, your family... That's a good bumper sticker, man. Yeah. <laughs> that is a good bumper sticker. It works. The salad bowl, that dressing that's got tons of sugar in it, but it's craveable. The breadsticks, they kicked ass at all those things. They yep. really did. Yep. They nailed what they were trying to do, and it's worked for, I don't know, 40 years or whatever it is. Bunch of decades. Uh, the, the group that they were going for, they absolutely nailed it. So when you're conceptualizing things, you can't just discount stuff like that. Yeah. You can take what they did and turn it into something that's more artisanal. But you can't turn your back on that and say they didn't nail it. They nailed it. Well, and so much of the conversation that we do, I, I think about it, right? When we, we talk in marketing circles, you talk about positioning, right? The idea mm -hmm. is, the, ex, uh, the assumption is, is that a market exists, which, which is true. Pretty much every town, every city, every block, every neighborhood yeah. has a market for restaurants, right? Mar restaurants yes. exist. If you're going to open a restaurant, you are going to be uh, inserting yourself into the market. And so by definition, you've got to say, we're like that, meaning we're another restaurant, but we're different because of the following reasons or because yeah. of this one very important reason whether we realize it or not that's what everybody does when they when they enter into any market in any industry yeah. no matter what product service you're selling and and i wish we spent more time talking about that and again you brought up with uh, olive garden say you know what they do is brilliant for the people they're trying to reach and i think you're probably right i think if there's anything olive garden does really well it's they know exactly who they're trying to reach and they've crafted the perfect experience for that demographic and they created a bumper sticker that that makes sense to who they are. And I think this is a really important thing, even if you're not using it outside of your own family, <clears throat> creating a bumper sticker that makes sense. Uh, Miley Carpenter, who's married to Wiley Dufresne, had this brilliant speech a few years ago that was at the Welcome Conference, and it was Know Your Bumper Sticker. And what she talked about was the army. And, the, and every decade, they changed their bumper sticker. 
So one year it was be all you could be, you know. But as times changed, they changed it. They stopped talking to the recruiter and they started talking to the parents at a certain point because kids were staying at home longer. So then it was, you made them tough, we'll make them army tough. So instead of talking to the kids, they were talking to the parents. Mm -hmm. And then during the me generation, it was army of one. And so they understood from a marketing and recruiting standpoint who they were going for. Within a restaurant, your guiding principles, I think, are so important because if everything goes back to that, you won't do anything that disrupts that bumper sticker. Yep. Here's who we in this restaurant. This is what we mean. This is what we care about. And it might not be one line. It might be the 12 guiding principles of that restaurant. Yep. Um, but I think that's super important, too. Like, can everybody agree that these 12 things are who we are? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so funny. I was... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I was giving a talk with Sean Walshef, who uh, runs a barbecue company called Cali Barbecue out in San Diego, and he's sort of slowly taking over uh, San Diego, uh, providing you know the Amazon of barbecue. Uh, but we gave a talk out in California last year together, and one of the things we talked about was your two whys, right? Why do you do what you do, right? Like, why do you exist, and why should anybody care? And it sort of gets to the heart of what, what you're talking about. Like, like, what is this? Why are we here? Why do we bother doing it? And why should anybody care that we are doing it? And I think if if more operators it's just answered those two. Yeah. It's very Simon Sinek, right? It's, we, so we were sort of building on, right, so Simon Sinek, for any of uh, the listeners who don't know, and, and I've talked about it a little bit, but in case, just a refresher, he talks about something called the golden circle. And uh, three concentric circles on the outside is what? One ring in is how, all the way in the center is why. And he says most companies work from the out in. They know what they do. They know how they do it better than anybody. But they never get to the why because they do the what and the how so well. They never have to figure out the why. And he sort of turns it around and says, but the best companies in the world, uh, the Apples, the Coca-Colas, the Patagonias, the you know, yeah. they start at the center and they understand the why, why we exist. And what we sort of added to that was that it's fine if you know why you exist. I think a lot of people don't know why they exist, and I think there's real um, beauty in, in in naming it, pinning it to the wall. But then our job then, as merchants, as business people, is to then communicate that as to why that matters and why anybody else should care about being part of that story, part of those core principles. Yeah, and I, I mean, I have a personal why of why I started. Um, that, that goes that goes a lot deeper than business. You know, I grew up in a I grew up in a very quiet home that never entertained, and it was a bit of a it was a bit of a sad home too. And I I wanted to be in a space that was happy and joyous, and people were having fun, and people were giving great feedback. And that was my original, even though it was kind of this superficial surface love that people were giving back that's what i was looking for i was looking for a space that i could build that was like a home or extension of other people's homes where they came in and had a really good time and i could feed off of their energy i love it talk to me about how that's evolved because we all grow and change and i think we don't spend enough time talking about how the things that we wanted back then don't have to be the things that we want now. And we're allowed to change as people. In fact, that's one of the coolest parts about being a human being. Talk to me about how that's evolved. Well, if you, if you talk, if you interviewed anybody who knew me 
30 years ago or even 20 years ago or maybe even possibly 10 years ago, they would describe me as an extroverted extrovert. Anybody who's ever met me in the last three years, and there's a few people who have become close friends that I've met in the last three years, would probably describe me as an introvert who's talented at being an extrovert. But he just kind of turns it on when he has to. I think that's the change, is that like I never ran out of uh, a gas or conversation in the old days. I didn't. Um, now, I really, when I, when I want to do it, I go in and I do it and I can really like it, but it has to be balanced with me spending a lot of time by myself. So I really like executive producing within a restaurant and I really like some nights being on the floor. It excites me. When we opened Laser Wolf with Michael Solomonoff in New York, it was back to like being on the floor and clearing and talking to guests and it was beautiful. I had like three weeks in New York at Laser Wolf that were just magical. And it felt, it, it, it was a different stage. It was New York City, which is this huge stage. And I had all these like really fun moments that were happening inside that restaurant. I remember that uh, in one night, Otto Lange, Kate Crater, Dana Cohen, Amanda Clute, and Ruth Reichel were all dining in the restaurant at the same time. <laughs> And I was like, this only ha this shit only happens in New York City. That's true. And I, went, and I went to Ruth and I said, I just want to tell you, I have a few reviews in my office that are framed as like art. And one of them is yours. And she goes, what review was it? And I said, uh, Union Pacific. And she said, the lady next to me is moaning. That's the first line of that review. <laughs> and I was like, that's it. That's the review. And so later on in the night, I went by and I, I sat down. Um, we served soft serve at the end of the meal there. And I brought some fries along with it because they liked the fries so much. And the next time I walked by, she grabbed me by the arm and she said, this time it's me that's moaning. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I was like, this is it. This is it. This is why I got in this business. What a great. This is exactly it right here. What a great moment. I, I like I was talking about this last night. I, I got to moderate Kat Cole last night, yeah. who's a legend. And I love her. She's a good friend. And, um, and I was, we were talking about how you build yourself. What is the Frankenstein that is you? Where did you get your management style from? Did you get it by rebelling or emulating against other people who managed you? Or did you just like take bits and pieces of people? And, and I said, my, like I remember seeing Sirio inside Le Cirque, and Sirio was like the show man. Yeah. He was like, he was all monologue, no dialogue. He, <laughs> he was like, he was like, what? You haven't been sat yet? Come right this way, ladies. And he would whisk them throughout the dining room, and I was like, that's cool and fun. And then I would watch like a Bobby Stuckey or a Donnie Medea, and they they were like in the service. You know, they were opening wines at the table and they were delivering food and they were a part of service. And then I watched Will Gadara the first time I ever went to a Madison Park and I'm like, he's like a CIA agent. He builds a whole dossier before you even get in the place so he can do service things when you're in there. Yeah. And so that's how I started to build who I was slowly, was all these little bits and pieces of, 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 of someone else. And so I felt like, when I was that person inside the dining room, that's how I could get the most joy out of being inside the dining room. If I, if I got to be all those people at different parts of the night, 
that's when I loved it the most. So I love this line of thinking. We're coming close to the end of our time together. And a couple of things I want to wrap up, but I want to just spend a moment on this. That's obviously, right. they say this, right? It's one of those things can't be taught, can only be learned. You've got to, you've got to want that. How do you instill that sense of curiosity, uh, humility, right? The humility to look around and say, who's doing stuff better than me? Who's doing stuff really great? Um, the curiosity to say, how did it, what makes them so great? Well, you just talked about this whole, this Frankenstein idea, which I love, which I think uh, it certainly resonates with me. I understand that. I, I, I feel like I have that muscle. I know that. What I spend a lot of time thinking about is how do you instill that in others, in your management team? How do you get them to instill that in your line level hourly employees? How do you think about that? Well, I tell everybody that everybody's doing cover songs, you know, is that we're all we're all taking original material. Almost all of our jobs have been done before. There's been maitre d's before, hosts before, line cooks before, all of this stuff. And then how do you make it your own? And I've told a story at every opening of every restaurant we've ever done. And um, I, I tell that story because it's the perfect analogy for, for, for this, for the cover version story, which is in 1997, um, and I don't know if you've heard me tell this one before, but in 1997, a friend of mine and I drove to, we're driving to St. Louis to look at a restaurant and we stopped at a Wendy's in Carlinville, Illinois, and we walked in the door and there was a woman uh, perched at the front and she was like, gentlemen, welcome to Wendy's hamburgers. And I was like, thank you very much. I'd never seen a major deed at Wendy's before. That's pretty awesome. Thank you so much. So I walked up to the front and the guy at the front, they, they had just done like Dave's spicy chicken sandwich. And he was like, let me tell you about our new special. We're doing a spicy chicken sandwich and here are the ingredients. And I was like, it's a good salesman. That's a good sales approach. I'll take that spicy chicken sandwich and I'll get a water and I'll get the super bar. You know, Wendy's back then had a super bar with like pasta and salad on it. And then the woman who was perched as the host was coming by with a napkin and she was cleaning and keeping that immaculate. And at one point, she re-poured my water with a pitcher of my table. And it was at this point I looked at Scott sitting across from me and I was like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, I, I think we're dining in the greatest fast food restaurant ever. And I was like, well, you know what? Let's go ask for the manager. I go, I'm curious about who this manager is because he's obviously amazing. And I just wanted, I, I just want to ask him a couple questions. So I went up, I go, can I speak to the manager, please? And they go, sir, is there an issue? I go, no, 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 <laughs> no, I'm not sorry. There's no issue at all. And he walks out and he goes, can I help you gentlemen? And I said, I just want to tell you, you have the best fast food restaurant that I think I've, I've ever seen run ever. And he goes, well, as you can see, we're very proud of it. And on the wall, they had a plaque for like, it was something called like the Golden Wendy's Award or something like that. They were like the best run Wendy's in the, in the corporation. And I was like, wow, this guy was given the same song everybody else was. And I started thinking about the Beatles. And I was like, the Beatles, every song they wrote was the standard bearer for every song until Joe Cocker redid with a little help from my friends. And it doesn't even sound anything like the Ringo sang version. It's a yep. completely different song. And he killed it. And I go, this guy's Joe Cocker. Yeah. And so what I say to everybody else is like, hey, go be Joe Cocker. You know, do it better than anybody else does. And if you don't like your job, 
nobody was ever a bad runner and became a good server or a terrible server and became a good manager. Yep. Nail your job and then move on to the job that you want to have. Love it. And so, I love it. Um, the last question, then I, then I got like six rapid fire questions for you, but the last thing I want to circle around uh, is to go back to this idea of profitability and this book and you discovered oil and that sort of changed your approach for restaurants, that there's a science to it. Talk to me about how you then bring your managers into that at each new property, how you teach them the science and the mechanics, because it's one thing, and I, and I go through this a lot as I coach clients, it's one thing for me to work with the, uh, the owners, right, or the owner operators, and I sort of open their eyes to this different way of thinking about revenue and tethering expenses to revenue and all that, and I watch the light bulbs go off. But then they have the responsibility to then go back and teach all of that and sort of make that part of the culture, you know, systematize that. Tell me about how you do that. Most people keep their information proprietary, which I think is dumb. You've got to share every line item of every P&L with everybody. And as a level set at the very beginning, we sit people down and we go, guys, we spent $5 million at this restaurant. Until we get $5 million back, we haven't made any money at all. So we're going to build a budget together. And we're going to show you how we do it. And then when the P&Ls come out, we send trial balance, preliminary P&L to the store level before it even ever comes to Rob and I or to the C-suite. So they can look at it. And if they have any questions, they could say, I don't understand how we got to this number. And accounting will tell them. Or they can recognize a mistake and mm -hmm. say, I think our inventory counts wrong. So then by the time we look at it, they have all the answers to the test. Then we sit down with them and we go over every line item and we say, do you guys want to explain to us why supplies that we budget three and a half percent is 5.2%? Yep. And they're like, yeah, but well, we screwed up and we did this or this happened or whatever. So there's accountability, there's actionable items, and there's full transparency. Love it. And so within those three things, they learn it. And I know at this point, because I've seen it before, they'll take our P&Ls, which we've created. You know, the, our P&Ls are not the ones that get spit out by the, by, you know, Great Plains accounting system. We built them to our own specs. Yeah, yep. And I know people that leave our company then use those P&Ls. <laughs> I've seen other people who showed me their P&Ls with our formatting. Yeah. <laughs> and <I'm> going, <laughs> That's our formatting right there. It's one of the first things I teach all my clients. I say, hey, listen, your, your bookkeeper, your accountant are going to hate me, and I don't care. You can have them call me. This is how a restaurant P&L has to look. They're giving you some other – you can't you, – you've got all this crucial information. It's got to be separated out, not to pull labor out in its own section. Like, I'm sorry, it does us no good. Just like if I tucked in, you know, beverage costs and – and food costs, you know, in between with, you know, electricity and maintenance, like doesn't you, you need to look at all together. So yeah, there, there's a specific way and I make enemies uh, pretty yeah. early on. Uh, well, we, create sure. bench, we, we create benchmark numbers for everything. And we're lucky because we have, you know, 25 restaurants that we're able to look at, you know, even little things like what is the amount of beverage inventory that we're keeping on hand divided by the amount of beverage sales that we have? Love and it. what is suitable number for how much inventory we should keep on hand. And so 
how much cleaning supplies are we using divided by sales? Uh, um, you know, we we get really we get really into the we in into the deep end of the pool with that stuff. Uh, we have a director of strategic initiatives that works for us who used to work for Microsoft, and she'll do anything. I'll say, tell us how much it takes to make a dollar in pastry at each of our companies, and she'll have to go in and say, well, we give away bread for free here, so we have to give that a value. Yeah. You know, it's not get those numbers but she's the best at it and we've been able to get all these comp set numbers of all of our restaurants to really dial it in i love it that sounds like a whole other conversation which maybe i'll talk to you down the line this is great um, kevin this has been an amazing conversation i got six vaguely rapid fire questions that i want to throw at you to, to sort of wrap this thing up all right first question what's the last uh the last great meal you had oh the last great meal I had was I was just in Thailand. I was in Chiang Mai, and we met this 70-year-old chef at the market. And uh, we shopped for two hours. We went back to her house. We picked vegetables from her garden. And we uh, 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 prepped and made with my whole family, you know, my son, Luca, was helping make the curry paste, um, <laughs> uh, an entire meal together. And it was everything a great meal should be. It was, there was love in it. My whole family participated in it. Um, uh, and, it and it was delicious and it was jovial. Um, I was, I, you can't get anything more out of a meal than that. It was, it was, it was so emotional, I cried at the end of the meal. I love it. Second question, um, what's the last great hospitality touch that, that really moved you, that went, whoa? I've got a big one. Um, my mom passed away um, in March, right before the pandemic, literally the day before they shut down restaurants. So that's, my mom passed on a Saturday. Sunday was the last day restaurants were allowed to be open. And we went to my restaurant in Springfield, Illinois, because we weren't going to be able to have a funeral. And so inside that restaurant is my mom's paintings, because I had asked her to paint 18 paintings inside that restaurant. Um, and so we felt like we were surrounded by her. And at the end of the meal, the now owner came up and said, I, I'm so sorry about your mom. Could you tell me a story again about the, the blue dogs in the space? And I told him, and he said, which one is your favorite? And I said, I, I love this one of the blue dog in the field of poppies. And he walked away from the table, we grabbed it off the wall, and he, we took it home with us. Amazing. It's I in my it. house. Amazing. <laughs> um, question three, if a genie came down, could grant you one wish as it relates to our in, uh, industry, what would it be? What would you wish for? Oh my gosh, so many things. You know, I think that we're in a place right now where people need more wellness, more balance. They're having more trouble finding happiness within the spaces of these restaurant four walls. This is something that we talk about and is on our agenda all the time. Um, I want to find a balance in the restaurant business where restaurants can both make it pencil to where the economics make sense, but at the same time, everybody across this whole country 
earns a fair wage and that we can really find that happiness, that initial happiness that I found in this business. There's so many beautiful things that happen inside this business, learning how to cook, being mentored by a great chef in the back, being able to capture some of that contagious energy that exists in the front of the house, all those beautiful things. I just want everybody to be able to capture and feel that. That's definitely another episode because I, I want to talk about how we, uh, how we take action to make that happen. I love that. Um, all right. So I asked you about a hospitality experience that, uh, that resonated with you. I want to flip it around and say uh, a restaurant experience, something that you did in your restaurants that you were a part of um, that affected somebody that you knew, somebody you saw, somebody you didn't know, whatever. Something you did in a restaurant that continues to resonate with you that, that still says, yeah, that's, that's why I do it. Four weeks ago, a woman reached out to me on Instagram and she said, I'm going to dine at Boca this week. And my father and I have dined at Boca each of the last 15 years on our birthdays. We share the same birthday and we always have martinis and eat the tasting menu. And she said, my father passed away, but I'm still going to come in. I wanted to let you know how important it was to me. So we got two martini glasses. His name was Seymour. And we etched Seymour's name on two beautiful crystal martini glasses. And we put them in a little box. And then we changed the name on all our cocktail menus that night um, to Seymour's Martini. And, uh, and we, we bought her dinner and we, we brought her the glasses. What a, what a cool touch. And in the end of the day, right, it doesn't really take much to do that. It just takes the, the will to it, do it. And it was fun. I mean, honestly, to like, what are we going to do for her? That's what makes this business fun, man. Yeah. Yep. Those moments where you get to be creative once again, it's back to the whiteboard again, man. If you don't have a whiteboard in your office or somewhere, get one and yeah. spend some time in front of it. Spend some time talking about what you're going to do at pre-shift, what you can do for guests, and how you can make your restaurant better. Love it. Fifth question. Uh, what would you tell someone who's about to open their first restaurant? Go slow. Make it small. Don't overbuild your first restaurant. You can figure out how to make money in a small restaurant, but... That's your bachelor's degree and your master's degree in getting restaurants. So don't start out with this giant place. Learn it the right way. Really take care of your guests. Um, you can pour over, you know, you have a 40 seat restaurant. You can pour over every single table, every single night. And I guarantee you, if you're great, if you're great, great's a big word, you'll find a customer base and you'll do really well. And then that reputation you get off of that restaurant will catapult you to doing more if you want to. I love it. All right, last question. Um, tell me about the future of restaurants. So I'm going to say, look, five years down the line, what is coming that other people you think don't see coming? Well, we, we have to create more food in the world. In the next 50 years, the amount of food that we have to create compared to where we're at right now um, is a staggering number. So we need to figure out um, a lot of things, technology and otherwise, to be able to feed everyone in the world. Um, restaurants themselves, um, I think, are going to benefit from how digital the rest of the world is. I think there is going to be meals that are utility, 
that people order off of a keypad and their food just shows up in front of them and they never talk to a human. But what, what we do in our company, I don't think is ever going to go away and I think it's going to become more important. So if you can really lean into giving hospitality that has real emotion behind it, people are going to be dying for that because we're getting further, further and further into tech and it's super one dimensional and it's not great for your brain. And so create, we need to create restaurants that help produce dopamine from people. And that's by having loving, real service inside of restaurants with people who actually want to take care of people. That's our first question to everybody. Do you like taking care of people? Those people are going to be harder to find. People that do find those people and curate those people, those restaurants are going to succeed. And then on the other side of that, let's create a module, a model that's not so fragile. You know, yep. like you said, four or five percent profit. One thing happens, and then you're out of business. That shouldn't happen anymore. Um, so um, let's. I, I hope we figure out how to create more food, have a better financial model, and continue to open up restaurants where people are happy in the space. Everybody's happy in the space. Customers, yep. teammates, everybody. Love it. Uh, Kevin, I appreciate your time. Uh, real quickly, tell uh, the audience where they can go to learn more about you and all your restaurants. You can go to bocagrp.com. That's B-O-K-A-G-R-P.com for Boca Restaurant Group. Um, I have a private wellness club here in Chicago called Beyond, B-I-A-N. It's livebeyond.com. Um, and you can go, you can find me on Instagram at Kevin Bame Boca. Um, that's K V I N B O E H M B O K A on Instagram. And I, and I answer all my DMS. So if you want to send me a DM, send me. Love it. We will include all those links in the show notes. Uh, Kevin, really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, have a great opening here with the, uh, the new restaurant. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Once again, a big thank you to Kevin for taking time out of his day in the middle of a, what must be a very hectic restaurant opening. To anybody out there who's opened a restaurant, you know how that goes. Uh, so big thanks to Kevin for sharing all of his uh, insights and wisdom with us today. Uh, as I said, all the links are in the show notes. I appreciate you guys being here, and I will see you next time.